Mark your place in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter number 47. We're going to be in John 7, and then just mark your place there in Ezekiel and chapter number 47. It is a joy to be here with you. I graduated in 2002 from the master's program here at West Coast Baptist College, and I'm so thankful uh, for the influence and the impact that West Coast Baptist College and Lancaster Baptist Church had on my life and ministry. I was here for just about 14 months, but it was a wonderful experience to be here, and I thank the Lord for it, and so it's a privilege to be back uh, here today, and I'm looking forward to what God's going to do in our hearts and lives together as we look in His Word this morning. John's Gospel in chapter number 7, I want to give you a real truth this morning from John chapter number 7, from the words of our Lord in verse number 37, where the Bible says, in the last day... That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we thank you this morning for the reading of your word. And Father, we thank you today that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and every bit of it is profitable. Father, I pray that this morning you'll help each one of us to realize and to see the prophet from John chapter number 7 in our own hearts and lives. Father, I ask you that you would use the Word of God to speak to our hearts and lives today. And Father, I pray that at the end of this chapel service that we would all say that God spoke to us and we were obedient to Him. Father, I pray that you'll use your Word in a powerful way in our hearts and lives together. And we'll give you the glory, honor, and praise for what you accomplished today. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you so very much for standing with me together this morning. <clears throat> At the end of um, 2016, all the statistics were coming out about the year of 2016 in church work and ministry work and in stats nationwide, just about anything you could imagine. I was intrigued by some of the statistics that came out from what people had talked about had happened in 2016, but one of the things that intrigued me the most was an article that had polled young adults from the age of 18 to the age of 27, 18 to 27, and they asked them one question in this survey. 4,000 people surveyed across all kinds of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different parts of the country, but they asked him one question, and they said this. They said, what do you struggle the most with in life? What is your greatest struggle in life? All kinds of answers started flooding in, but it was amazing that over 65% of the people that responded to that one question survey from the age of 18 to 27, 4,000 people surveyed all across the nation, different backgrounds. The number one answer that came back 
was this. I couldn't believe it. Boredom. Boredom. I'm always struggling with boredom. It seems that there's just nothing to do. I thought about that. You know, we're living in a world where there is more entertainment available on demand than ever before. There is more stores and shopping available. There's more toys available. There's more social media outlets available and more ways to communicate with people than ever before. But they said we struggle with boredom. One man said this, he said, I live from event to event to just keep from being bored. One, one young lady said, I live from purchase to purchase to keep from being bored. One young dating couple said, we just live from trip to trip. Where can we go next in the world and see some great adventure to keep from being bored from meal to meal and from one social activity to the next social activity, from one movie release to the next movie release, from one album being released on iTunes to the next one, from one concert to the next concert. Watch, one young man said from one relationship to the next relationship. Business people. Going from deal to deal to keep from getting bored. From hobby to hobby to keep from getting bored. From sporting event to sporting event to keep from being bored. One young man was honest and he said, my family just hopped from church to church to keep from getting bored. It's amazing how we have so much. We have so many things we can do and we have so many things that can uh, captivate us, but the number one thing that from 18 to 27, 4,000 people again said the number one thing that they were struggling with in their life was simply this, boredom. When you stop and think about how shallow that really is, we live a pretty shallow life if we insist on new things and new places and new people and new events all the time to prevent boredom. And I'll tell you why it's shallow. Because we can never sustain that type of lifestyle. We can never sustain that type of pace. I want to ask you a question this morning. Is there more to life than this meaningless pursuit of happiness that always seems to leave us after we pursue the next thing in a state of boredom. And I want to tell you this morning, the Word of God says emphatically over and over and over again, the answer is yes. The answer to boredom is not found in pursuits. It's not found in places. It's not found in purchases. But according to our Lord's words in John chapter 7, the answer to not living a boring life is found simply in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter number 7, our Lord is going to speak. And He's going to speak some words, and I know in the major context of this, He's speaking on the subject of salvation and redemption and coming to Him. But there's such application and truth for our lives because I unfortunately work with a lot of young adults who today are just bored and I'm talking about Christian young people that have the right doctrine, have the right beliefs, have the right truth, have all the things that God has given them, but it seems that they are just living a boring life. 
I want you to know this. God didn't save you to live a boring life. God saved you. He called you. He's given you a holy calling. He's given you a heavenly calling. He has given you a pursuit to pursue all of your life that will captivate every ambition and desire you could possibly imagine. And Jesus is going to tell us how to do that in John chapter number 7. I want you to notice in our text this morning, first of all, just the context of this text. In John chapter number 7 this morning, we see this context. Look with me in verse number 1 for a moment. The Bible said, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now what you notice the context in verse number 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be attending this feast of the tabernacles. Some might call it the tabernacles or the booths, they might call it. This Feast of the Tabernacles was a seven-day feast where literally not just Jew, but Gentile was invited to come. Everyone would come and they would celebrate the goodness of God when the people of God wandered in the wilderness. You see, they would celebrate, they would set up these temporary booths and these temporary booths were to represent how they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years waiting on that land that God promised them. And then there was food like you could not imagine. Food was to be shared with everyone. And right outside of these booths, they would eat and they would celebrate and they would have feasts. And it was a wonderful time. And that was to represent the provision that God had given them as they wandered in the wilderness. And then in Zechariah chapter number 14, they would look forward to the day when their Messiah would come. And when the Messiah would come, there would be celebration, there would be dancing, there would be absolute hilarity that would take place according to Zechariah 14 when the Messiah would come. And so they would look back at the provision in the past of God. They would look at present at the provision of what God had given them. And they would look forward to the future of when that Messiah, he would come and he would give them these blessings and this eternal bliss and joy. It's right here in the middle of this context. This was the most festive celebration that the nation of Israel would have every year. It was a time of great joy. It was a time of great happiness. It was a time where literally all the cares of life would be set aside and the people would celebrate. The Bible tells us that they're here celebrating, but on that seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, something special would happen. The priests would all gather together and the high priest would go down into the pool of Siloam, probably about 35 steps down into this pool of Siloam. And he would take a golden picture and he would fill it with water and he would come up and the other priests would surround him and he would go to the altar and he would pour this water out. And when he would pour this water on the altar, the place went crazy. People would begin to shout. They would begin to dance. They would begin to scream aloud. They would almost go into hysteria. It was an emotional moment and everyone would get so excited at this last day of the feast. It's right here in the context of John chapter 7 and verse number 37 where the Bible said Jesus on the last day of this feast stood up. And what did he do? Look at verse number 37 for a moment. In that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried. 
Now that was very different than his nature because the Bible said of him that he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall his voice be heard in the streets. And so this was a very unusual thing when our Lord would lift up his voice right here on this last day of the feast. And he lifts up his voice and he cries right in the middle of this hilarity, right in the middle of all this celebration, right in the middle of all this ritualism that is supposed to bring happiness and joy and contentment. Jesus stands up and he cries. And he says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. What is he saying? In this context, we can't miss this because every bit of this Feast of Tabernacles as every other feast in the Old Testament was simply pointing to Jesus. It was a picture of Him. You see, He would be their protection. He would be their provision. He would be their joy. And this Feast of Tabernacles really pointed to Him. But the nation of Israel, they were blinded. They had missed their Messiah. And so Jesus stands up right in the middle of this feast in the best that their religion had to offer them, the most joy and happiness that their religion and ritualism could offer them, Jesus stands up and he literally says this, there's so much more. There's so much more. There's more than just this hilarity. There's more than just what you're experiencing now. There's me. I am the reason why there is a Feast of Tabernacles. Why would he stand up on this last day and say this? Because he knew they were going to go back home after seven days of celebration. They were going to go back home to their same heartaches. They were going to go back home to their same fears. They were going to go back home to their same insecurities. They were going to go back home to their same meaninglessness and purposelessness, maybe we could say it this way, they were going to go back to their same boring lives because Jesus wasn't in the middle of them. And Jesus stands up and he says, after all this celebration, after all this ritualism, after all the best your ritual can give you, if you're still thirsty, come unto me. After your religiosity has given you everything it has to offer. And after you come to the end of it and there's nothing left and you're still longing for real life. Come unto me, he said. We see in this passage the context, but I want you to notice the condition that he gives. The condition is found in verse number 37 of John chapter 7. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. I want you to see this condition. Jesus said, in order to step out of this ritualism that's not providing real life, that's not providing real joy, if you want real life, you have to first and foremost be thirsty. You have to be thirsty. There has to be a desire. Thirst gives the idea of a lack of satisfaction and substance. Jesus is literally saying to them, this festival and celebration is going to come to an end. 
But when it does, what will you have? What are you going to have after all the external things that are supposed to bring you joy and happiness? What are you really going to have? And he tells us what they're going to have. They're going to have nothing but thirst and a desire. Are you going to wait till next year's celebration? Are you going to wait till next year's Feast of the Tabernacles to have joy, to have purpose, to have real meaning in life? Or are you thirsty for a life of satisfaction? Thirst is a, not a want. Thirst is a desire. It's a need. God created our bodies to hunger and to thirst. And that thirst, when we're thirsty, it is a gift from God when we're thirsty. That gift from God tells us that we need to drink. That gift of thirst tells us that there's something missing that gift of thirst tells us that we need more than we currently have. And so Jesus uses this perfect analogy, and he's telling them, without water you'll die, and without thirst you'll not know that you're dying. And so Jesus says, if any man, after all this celebration is finished, is still thirsty, let him come unto me. I uh, played... I love, enjoy playing golf. And on the East Coast, we have a little something called humidity. Anybody from the East Coast around here this morning? All right. Anybody from the great state of Georgia here this morning? God bless a few saved people. Glad to see it. Anyway, I hear that Brother Shepherd is an Alabama fan. You pray for him. He needs revival. But anyway, on the East Coast, we have something called humidity. I notice every single time I come out here, there's not a lot of humidity out here. When I was out here, I played golf a few times with some of the men in the church, and we went out and played golf, and one of the men told me, he said, now John, when you go out and play golf here in California, you need to make sure that you take a couple of bottles of water with you to drink some water out here, because you'll be thirsty, and you'll be dehydrating, and you won't even know it. You'll feel great. The weather feels great. Man, you're going, this is perfect. And, and I said, oh, okay. And, and I, at the time, was 20 years old, 21 years old. I said, oh, okay. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to take a bunch of water out there. I'm carrying my clubs. That's going to make my bag heavier. Are you crazy? And so I just went out there and started playing golf. And we played. It was about 94 degrees, I think, the day we played. And we were outside playing. We were walking 18 holes. And I felt great. I wasn't even sweating. I thought, this is fantastic. I was having a pretty good round. I got to the eighth hole, and I set the ball on the tee, and I stepped back. And when I stepped back and grabbed my driver, I looked down, and Dr. Getch, I saw three golf balls. And they were moving like this. I stepped back for a second. I looked again out there, and I stepped up again, and there they were again. And I stood there for a second, and I looked, and I stood there for a second. They thought I was really concentrating. I wasn't. I was just trying to live, you know. And I'm, I'm there ready to hit the ball. And, and finally, the guy from the church says to me, he goes, uh, having a hard time, aren't you? I said, what do you mean? He said, how many golf balls do you see right now? I said, I see three. He goes, oh, you're lucky. I've seen five before. He said, where's your water at? I said, what water? He said, the water I told you last night to drink. How, where's your water? I said, I don't have any. He said, why didn't you bring water? I told you to bring I said, I wasn't thirsty. I wasn't thirsty. He said, well, listen, sometimes you got to drink whether you're thirsty or not because you really have a need, but you don't know that you have a need. You see, thirst is an indicator to us 
that we have a real need in our life. God designed this thing called life in such a way where when you live it apart from him, it produces a thirst in our lives. It produces something that, watch, ritualism cannot replace. Religion cannot replace it. Can I take it a step further? Bible college chapel can't replace. And Bible classes can't replace. And church services can't replace. There's only one thing that can quench the thirst of God's people. And it is more of Christ in us. It's coming to a place where we understand that we have to be thirsty. How do you know if you're really thirsty? Man's crawling through the desert. Hasn't had water for three days. Comes up. There's a place there with water. He says, I'd like to have some water. He said, no problem. And also, while you're at it, I'd also like that wristwatch. I want some water and the wristwatch. May I tell you something? He's not really thirsty. Because when you're thirsty, there's nothing else you desire or want or need other than that which can meet the thirst that you have. Do you know when you're really thirsty, if you're really thirsty, that day when I saw three golf balls, I didn't say to him, boy, I'd like some water and that new driver. I didn't care about the driver at that point. All I cared about was one thing. I need water. Can I tell you how you know when you're really thirsty? It's when nothing else will satisfy and you know it. Jesus said, if any man's really thirsty. And by the way, not everybody will be. Some won't recognize their need. Jesus said, but if any man does thirst, let him come unto me. You know, I believe one of the blights on our churches today is we have more than we have ever had before. We have more stuff, more technology, more things, more hobbies, more pursuits, more ability more talent, more knowledge than we ever have had before. But I want you to know this, that we fill our lives with all those things, but it's never going to satisfy. I want you to know this, that as students going into ministry, we can fill our lives with everything in the world. We can have every appearance of being right with God, and we might be. But I want you to know something. There should be a thirst in our lives for something more than just external things. There should be a thirst and a desire in our lives as preachers of the Word to have more than just a big church. There should be a thirst and a desire in our lives to do more than just do something for the Lord and serve Him so everybody will stay off our back. There should be a thirst and a desire for Christ in our lives. And no substitute can replace that. I want you to see the command in this text. We see the context and we we see the condition. If any man thirsts, but I want you to notice the command. It's found in John chapter 7 and verse number 37. He said, in the last day, that great day of the feast, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Notice what he said. Let him come unto me and 
drink. Those are not passive verbs. Those are active verbs. Jesus said, let him come unto me. Let him drink of me. What does it take to drink? It takes action. But it takes faith. Yesterday I went to a restaurant and someone asked me, what would you like to drink? I'll tell you this, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. I don't like, you know, I usually wipe my silverware off at a restaurant. I go to a hospital and I step in. The first thing I do is find a restroom and wash my hands. Second thing I do is I go down the hallways. How many of you have ever visited the hospitals? They have the hand sanitizer stations. I go down the halls like this and I hit all the hand sanitizer stations. I wipe my hands. I'll go into the room this Sunday. I was at a visit. I went in and had gloves on because the man had had an infection. I said, can I have two pair of gloves? That's okay. I mean, I put gloves on. I had to put a mask on. I had to put all that stuff on. I walked out. You know what I did? I found the first restroom. I washed my hands and I walked down those same hallways and I did this the whole way out. I pushed the elevator with my elbow, not with my finger because I don't want to get it dirty. Man, I'm telling you something. I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. And so when I go to a restaurant, the first thing I do is I don't look at the menu. I don't look at what's in the menu. I look at what's on the menu. Somebody, I order a drink. I, don't, I say to them, I, say, I look at the cup. You know what, though? It takes faith for me to order a drink because the guy goes back into the kitchen. And let me tell you why you're thinking about how wonderful this meal is. Let me tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about, did that guy wash his hands? Was that dishwasher in a good mood when he washed my glass? Some of you say you're a germaphobe. I know, pray for me. But I'm telling you. But you know what? When I'm thirsty and someone brings water, you know what I do? I don't worry about all that. I just drink it. Just drink it. Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come and drink. I want you to see the last thought in this text is so important. There's a continuation. In the context of this, I believe this is talking about salvation. But I want you to notice what Jesus said in verse number 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall what? Flow rivers of living water. Now, wait a minute, verse number 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. I want you to see the context of this and this continuation. Jesus said, Now, watch, he that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow. Rivers of living water. In other words, something that flows has a source. And I want you to notice what else he said. The source is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who had not yet been given, but in Acts chapter number 2, he came and he indwells believers today. And I want you to notice what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus is teaching us something so very important, that in salvation the Spirit of God will come in our lives and yes, we have to be thirsty in order to come to Christ and realize our need. Absolutely. But I want you to hear me this morning. In order to prevent living a life that's boring and meaningless and doesn't really matter, is always pursuing the next thing, we have to let the river of God flow in our lives after we believe. 
Notice what Jesus said. He said, as the scripture hath said. I've studied this passage out and I can't find this direct quote anywhere in the Old Testament. As the scripture hath said. There's principles. But I believe this is not talking about maybe just one verse of scripture. I believe it may be talking about a family of scriptures. And I believe that family of scripture is found in Ezekiel 47. And I'm going to ask you to turn there very, very quickly this morning. But in Ezekiel chapter number 47, I want you to see what God says to us in this passage of scripture. Ezekiel was the bizarre prophet of God. He was a prophet that had the visions. And the Bible tells us in Ezekiel chapter number 47 that he has a vision of the eternal city of God. And he's seeing a river in Ezekiel 47. There's a great contrast that happens in Ezekiel 47 because he looks out one side of the temple of God and he sees that there's a dead sea. And that dead sea, of course, we know is full of salt. It's lifeless. Everything around it is dying. There's nothing growing over near that dead sea. It's barren. But then Ezekiel sees a new river that's flowing. And this is that eternal river of God that's flowing and I want you to see what he says in Ezekiel 47 in verse number 1. Afterward, he brought me again into the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the right side of the altar. So Ezekiel is having this contrasting vision he sees one river or one sea that is dormant, it is dead, it is lifeless. Nothing is happening in one. But then he sees near the altar of God, and he sees near the house of God, a river that is flowing. I believe this is the contrast that John is encapsulating in John chapter number 7. Jesus looked at the life of these Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, and they're like that Dead Sea. There was no life. Nothing was flowing. Nothing was growing. Nothing was flourishing in one. But then he looked at the other. When a Christian becomes a child of God and the Spirit of God comes to live in him, his life will flow forth as the river in contrast the two. How do we live life the way God Intended us to live it. How? Now I want you to hear me. Apart from being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, you and I will never accomplish anything that really matters. Apart from a fresh anointing and a filling of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, We'll be like that Dead Sea. Plenty that goes in, but nothing flowing out. And my oh my, does that ever depict what many Christians' lives have become? Filled with the Word, filled with knowledge, but nothing flowing. How do we live a Spirit-filled Christian life? It starts at a place. It starts at a place. Ezekiel in this prophecy in verse number one said that the place where this river began to flow was at the altar. 
It's of the south side of the altar. The altar always represented judgment in the Word of God. Always represented judgment. And we know this, that this altar would represent something so powerful and so important because this altar of God is a picture of the judgment and the cross that our Lord would die upon. And I believe that Ezekiel is teaching us something important, that real life always begins at the cross. It always begins at that altar of judgment. Not just the altar and the cross of salvation, but hear me carefully. The cross of self-denial. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 20, the Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. How do I live a life that is not boring, but I live a life that is Spirit-filled? There must come a time, there must come a place, and it must come to us very often, and we must visit it often, where we come to the end of our own selves and we die to ourselves. That's the place. God only can use something or someone that's dead. Why did Paul say in Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice? Why? You know and I know that a living sacrifice has the opportunity to get off the altar often. And we have to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. There has to be a daily visit to the cross of self-denial if the river of God is going to flow in our lives. So you see, there's not only a place, but there's this path. In the next few verses, God says to Ezekiel, the son of man, I want you to wade into this river. I want you to go to your ankles. He goes to his ankles. Then he says, son of man, I want you to go to your knees. And he wades into his knees. Then he says, I want you to go into your waist. And he wades in further to his waist. And, and then he said, I want you to launch further. And before you know it, Ezekiel is swimming in this river. And there's a path that God talks to us about this spirit-filled Christian life. It begins at a place, but there's a path. And I want you to see what it is. This path always will lead us to take another step further with him. Just another step deeper. Just another step further. You see, you can never drink enough from this fountain. You can never get enough of the Spirit of God's filling in your life. There's always going to be another step of surrender. There's always going to be another level where God says, I want more of you. You see, being filled with the Holy Spirit of God is not that I need to get more of the Holy Spirit of God. It means that the Holy Spirit of God needs to get more of me. And I need to take another step. And another step. And another step. And I want you to see, lastly, there's a power that comes. Ezekiel contrasts these rivers. And he said, in one river, everything around it is unhealthy. This lake or this sea of Galilee, everything is dead. Everything is failing. Everything is barren. Everything is sick. But he said, next to this new river, this Holy Spirit of God that is flowing, there'll be life where there was death. 
There will be health where there was sickness. There will be success where there is failure. There will be fruit where there is barrenness. What's the key? What's the secret? What's the trick? It's simply this. We have to stay thirsty. Isaiah 44.3 ought to be a verse that every one of us know and commit to memory. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. So will I pour my spirit upon thy children and my blessing upon thine offspring. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know this morning the greatest need that I have and the greatest need that you have is once again to return to a desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because He makes all the difference. I close. I was privileged to serve the Lord in London, England for almost six years as a church planning pastor. One day I had the opportunity to go to John Wesley's house. John Wesley's house was right next to his chapel. I went into John Wesley's house and I was bringing a friend with me. He had never seen it and I'd been there a few times and I said I'd show it to him. And so he was in the chapel and, and I went to the house just because he was walking around reading everything and buying souvenirs and I was trying to fill a few minutes. And I went into the house and there was an older gentleman. He was about 82 years old. And he said, sir, have you ever seen Mr. Wesley's house. And I said, I've been here many times, but I've never toured it. He said, would you like to tour it? I said, I'd be honored to. The man started walking me around all the places in Wesley's house. And we got to John Wesley's bedroom. Very short man, John Wesley was really about four foot four, had a very small bed and showed me where he slept. And he said, but you want to see the most important thing about John Wesley? I said, Absolutely pulled us over and there was a little curtain. He pulled this curtain back. Right there was a little rug, same rug that John Wesley had. And he said every day Mr. Wesley would get up at four o'clock in the morning and the knee prints were still there where John Wesley at four o'clock every morning would get on his knees and would pray. In his memoirs, I began to flip through some of the memoirs Wesley would say things like this. I have so much to do today. I must pray for power at least another hour. I think of it the opposite. I have so much to do today. I can't pray for an hour. Wesley said, I had so much to do. I must pray for at least another hour. The man said, would you like to kneel where John Wesley knelt? I said, sure. I knelt down and I'll never forget that 82-year-old man coming behind me, putting his hands on my shoulder. Dr. R., I kid you not, the minute he started praying, he said this. He said, Father. And the minute he said, Father, I knew that we had entered into God's presence. Not because of that place, but because there was an 82-year-old man that knew God and had been filled with His Spirit. We finished praying and the man said to me, He said, Pastor, what was so great about John Wesley was not John Wesley. He said, what was so great about John Wesley is John Wesley always stayed thirsty for God's power in his life. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that is what we once again need. A genuine thirst for His work and His power in our lives.